electricity, a big idea that's inspired countless new ones. From powering the light bulb to virtually powering our entire lives. 30 years ago, State Street launched the Spider S&P 500 ETF, SPY. A big idea that inspired the world to invest differently. And still does. What can you do with SPY? Before investing, consider the funds, investment objectives, risks, charges, and expenses. Visit SSGA.com for a prospectus containing this and other information. Read it carefully before investing. SPY is subject to risks similar to those of stocks. All ETFs are subject to risk, including possible loss of principal. Alps Distributors, Inc. Distributor. Everybody, I'm Kelly Evans. Here's what's ahead this hour. Data delusion. Is the Fed making decisions based on increasingly imprecise jobs data? One of my guests says yes. We'll look at the issues and the potential fallout for the economy and for the markets. Plus, Europe has a major inflation problem. Kyle Bass and Michael Darda have warned stay away, but it's not stopping one of our guests from investing there. He brings sectors and names where he sees opportunity right now. And he's been a shark, a jet, and a dolphin. RSE Ventures' Matt Higgins joins me in studio to talk about his VC investments, his new book. Would Momofuku ever go public? He's the guy to ask. But first, we got to get to today's markets and the 10-year yield, Dominic Chu, 409. Yeah, it, it's pretty crazy. What's even crazier is the one-year yield. We'll get, we're going to show you that in a second because you're going to get north of 5% at this point. To Kelly's point, If you take a look at the way markets are reacting, interest rates are still driving a big part of that narrative right now. It's mixed so far. The Dow Industrial is the real outperformer today. The S&P 500 is 39.48. Watch that 39.40 level. That's that kind of 200-day average price on a rolling basis down below. If you go above 39.80-ish or thereabouts, so we're kind of in this range bouncing right around that longer-term trend line, just about flat on the session. And by the way, being down two points is actually the highs of the session. The tip top was minus one, and we were down 23 handles at the low. So, again, tilting towards the higher end, even though we are still modestly negative. The Nasdaq Composite, the underperformer here, down about one-third of 1%, 11,339. And, by the way, the Dow Industrials, I'm going to come to this right now, up a half a percent, the real outperformer, up 136 points, is because of the next chart I'm going to show you. It's specifically Salesforce. The big enterprise software database cloud computing company out with blockbuster results last night, really kind of giving some traders pause. This has been a really, really downtrend type stock over the last year, still down about 11 percent. But after beating quarterly results and giving a more upbeat forecast, adding to its stock buyback, those shares are now up about 12 percent. And believe it or not, that's near session lows, up 12 percent. Now, Salesforce is a member of the Dow. Salesforce's point contribution right now means that if it were just flat on the session, we would actually be negative on the Dow. That's how much the Dow is being driven by Salesforce. Watch that. And then interest rates. Got to mention those. Kelly mentioned that 10-year pushing 4.1%. But I want to call your attention to the one-year yield, 5.07%. So still, you're getting that for one years. And I'm going to follow this with the two-year note yield at 4.92%. The reason why is I'm going to show you a long-term chart going all the way, way back, Kelly, to 2007. Because the last time that we saw yields for the two-year Treasury note at 4.92%, you've got to go all the way from here back to July of 2007. That's how long it's been since the two years been this high. Remember, at the pandemic lows, it was bumping around 10 basis points or one-tenth of 1%. Keep an eye on those yields, Kel. I'll send things back over to you. All right. I think I I got some firsthand experience uh, with Treasury Direct last night, Don Banks. 
One of my next guests says stocks will end the year higher than where they started. The other says a downturn won't come till 2024. What gives them such confidence? Joining me now, Mark Avalone is president of Potomac Wealth Advisors and Ben Emmons is senior portfolio manager and head of fixed income at New Edge Wealth. Welcome to both of you guys. I appreciate you being here. Um, ben, let me just start with you and let's rewind a little bit and talk about why yields are so high this morning and that unit labor cost report. What's going on there? Hi, Kelly. Uh, first of all, thank you very much for having me. Um, so what's happening is that the long end of the yield curve is starting to price in an inflation risk premium. You know, if you look at the inflation linked bond market, the expectations there are again rising and it's actually almost about the same as the 10-year yield is rising. So it does indicate to me that as a number like that, like unit labor costs really surprised to the upside, that you're getting this jolt in, in the 10-year yield. Yeah. As Dom is outlining, you know, on the, on the front end, there's clearly pricing of a Fed going for longer. So it's all about inflation today in the 10-year. Yeah, Mark, I'll sort of turn to you on that as well. I mean, we get this report. It's a quarterly report. It's not usually much of a market mover, but the data came in twice as high as expected. So people are looking at that, and this this adds in wages with benefits and all the rest of it. It was expected to be 1.6%. It came in at 3.2. Ouch. Well, it's obviously good for the workers involved, uh, but in terms of the economy and how, what the Fed hears from that, that's a different story this unemployment number is is still very low. We're seeing strong wage growth in certain pockets. And, and I think this is the damper for stocks, that the Fed is going to be committed to a 2% inflation number. We are so far away from that. People are talking about a, a cut from the Fed in six months or early next year. That's not going to happen. And as long as Jerome Powell has a laser bullseye on inflation and a 2% target in a red-hot labor market, we are going to have trouble in stock investing. But you think stocks are going to end the year higher than they were on Jan 1, Mark? Yes, because stocks will move six months before this economy bottoms. And we think the Fed is going to continue to raise through the middle of this year and then by the end of this year, stocks will have a, a rise, just like we saw in January when we thought the Fed was going to cool off because we had glimpse of cooler in, inflation. When we start seeing that in the second half, it's going to be January all over again. And that's why we think once the Fed slows down middle third quarter of this year, stocks will try to get ahead just like it did in January. All right. So you see us kind of going down, but then having this rebound. Uh, stay right there, guys, if you will. We're just getting some news in on mortgage rates. You might guess on the back of soaring Treasury yields what's happening. Diana Olick has the latest numbers. What do you see, Diana? Well, Kelly, the 30-year fix just crossed over 7%, 7.1% to be exact, according to Mortgage News Daily. Take a look at this roller coaster over the last several months. Rates went over 7% at the end of October, which immediately caused home buyers to pull back pretty dramatically. Then in December, they started coming down again, all the way to 6% by January. That caused a big jump in buyers in January, signing contracts on existing homes, so-called pending home sales, up an unexpectedly strong 8% month to month. But the past four weeks, they have been rough. Rates have moved 100 basis points higher since the start of February. So if you're buying a $400,000 home with 20% down on a 30-year fixed, your monthly payment is now roughly 230 bucks more than it would have been just a month ago. We've already seen mortgage applications from home buyers drop dramatically last week to a 28-year low. So we thought at the start of this year that the housing market was beginning a recovery. It appears that recovery 
has now stalled. Rising fears that inflation is not getting in check is pushing bond yields higher, as you all know, and mortgage rates right along with them. Kelly? Wow. I can't believe how much we've come full circle on this. Diana, real quickly, what was the high last year we hit on the mortgage rate? It was 7.37% at the end of October. Okay. All right, Diana, thank you. Diana Olick. So 7.1%. I'm turning back to Mark and Ben here. Ben, what's your reaction to that? Yeah, it's certainly going to put pressure on the economy, you know, housing obviously being important for GDP. And people have pointed to that if housing starts to slow down even more, then the construction jobs are going to start to really decline. And that could indeed finally bring some cooling to the labor market. But I have to say, Kelly, that this rise in in rates may not be over yet. You know, we're going to get ISM services tomorrow and CPI in in a week or two. It all looks like upward pressure on prices back I think really from the China reopening. So these higher rates are here. We may retest the highs in both the 10-year and that mortgage rate as, uh, as was outlined. So I think this is the direction of, uh, of travel for the moment, which will put pressure on housing. Wow, wow, uh, absolutely. Mark, I'll give you a final word I want to point out. Uh, along with your kind of macro stock view, you like defense still. We've talked about this a lot. You like the insurance ETF. You even think uh, tech isn't dead yet. Well, that's right. And we do like broad diversification. And with the let's take the insurance sector, there's they don't have consumer loans as the as the Fed raises rates, slows the economy. The insurance companies aren't subject to that. But yet they benefit from these higher rates. Everybody said, oh, financials benefit from higher rates. Well, the bank stocks aren't reflecting that, but the insurance company stocks are. And that's because they're not cyclical. They don't have short term lines of credit. That's why we were there. Technology is a tougher story because it's a company by company basis. But I think investors would be well served to be in both the value trade as well as growth stocks. All right. A a barbell, uh, if you will. Uh, Guys, we'll leave it there. Thank you so much for your time and reactions today. Mark Avalone and Ben Emmons. And it isn't just here that rates are soaring and higher inflation. Eurozone inflation came in at eight and a half percent today. This after Germany saw more than nine percent inflation yesterday. France and Spain, seven and six percent respectively. Heyman Capital's Kyle Bass on Power Lunch last week warning of dark times ahead for Europe over the next 10 to 15 years. MKM's Michael Darda on this show warned the European Central Bank is at risk of making the same mistake as the Fed here by creating a rate hike induced recession. But my next guest is bullish. Joining us now is Cole Smead, CEO and Portfolio Manager at Smead Capital Management. Cole, I don't want to overstate your enthusiasm for Europe, but you, I, I think it's safe to say you have a very different perspective here than what we heard from Kyle and Mike. Why is that? Yeah, because investors got really comfortable with what they had seen over a decade, which was that low inflation and the kinds of businesses that have benefited and the, the businesses that price up, Kelly. So, for example, in that era, it was low inflation and low interest rates cause asset light businesses to be worth a lot more. Okay, But in reality, what transpired was the more capital intensive businesses had really low uh, interest costs and therefore they were able to fund their businesses through debt in a way that they rarely ever get as asset intensive businesses. Now we're in the world, Kelly, where asset light businesses are getting killed uh, on most days. And the asset intensive businesses that are tied to these economic factors that we're talking about and some of what you and your guests were talking about before actually benefits the capital intensive business, because as the cost of capital goes up, who can compete in capital intensive industries? And that just happens to be what Europe has, you know, really left to right compared to the tech heavy United States. So, for instance, I mean, would autos be an example of what you're talking about? Yeah. So um, think about it. Uh, you know, Musk has to go out and build factories, for example. And that's there's real cost to that uh, in his business versus 
if your um, Volkswagen or your Porsche automobile holdings there, you know, which is the Porsche and Peach family holding company, um, they have a lot of assets that we don't think are correctly valued. Um, use the spinoff of Porsche uh, earlier this year, P911. Um, that company is worth roughly about what Volkswagen uh, trades for in the open market. So we think there's a myriad of assets like that that uh, aren't exposing the value. And it's because for 10 years, Kelly, people didn't want to touch Europe because, frankly, no money was made. Now, one other thing I'll mention, go back and look at the history of the dollar. Um, what happens is when commodities do really well, the dollar does poorly. 08 was a good example of oil being king and the dollar being weak. There's also a translation effect that will probably happen as the dollar weakens because you know, that, that twos and froze over 10 and 20 year periods. So people might also think, OK, well, then obviously you got to look at the energy uh, majors. I, I, Peter Bookfar, yeah. perhaps a few others have said, you know, th- uh, that they're more attractive in Europe. But you're, you would say maybe not so fast. Why? Yeah, because um, well, uh, real quick, uh, my, there was a company in Seattle uh, where I grew up and, you know, having my father, Kelly, as you know, I'm going to learn a lesson. <laughs> and so he said he said uh, there was a company called Puget Sound Energy and they would teach you how to use less natural gas. It was the local natural gas provider. And he told me never own a company that teaches you to use less of their product. Okay? <laughs> and that's what the European majors have been doing. Hey, we're oil and gas businesses, but we want to teach you how to use less of our product. That's a foolish strategy. And I think you and I teased uh i think i think you saw it put out on twitter where i was just glad to know that shell was thinking about leaving europe because they hate the industry they hate what they do and so that just doesn't look attractive compared to the united states or canada the other thing i think that really looks attractive in europe though is the banks um what unicredit and banks like bowick have been doing where they're buying back their shares they're producing incredible return on equity compared to what people thought and that's an american thing buybacks are more of an american thing um, Bowag performed the first uh, buyback approved by the ECB ever hmm. uh, three years ago, if my math serves me correct. So we're seeing American entrepreneurialism, American capitalism in European banking, which has just never been present before. This is like the least expected. I could like there, I have 12 follow ups, Cole, for everything that you just said, and we're out of time. So we'll start there. We'll pick it up. You know, I, I appreciate you coming on and kind of providing a very different perspective. Thank you so much today. Thank you. Cole Smead, Smead Funds. Coming up, Broadcom, Costco, Nordstrom, they're all on deck to report. We've got the numbers and narratives to know ahead in earnings exchange. Plus, is the Fed flying blind by trying to be so data dependent? Moody's Mark Zandi is here with a look at whether Powell should start to doubt the data instead of telling investors to trust the process. And as we head to break, here's a look at the market. Salesforce keeping the Dow out of the red. It's up 116. Uh, The other markets, though, down close to half a percent. The S&P down a tenth of a percent and the 10-year session high 4.091. We're two bips below that. We're back after this. This is The Exchange on CNBC. From pit lane to podium, the Las Vegas Grand Prix is providing fans a race day experience at the speed they deserve with the help of T-Mobile for Business. Our 5G advanced network solutions are powering race day operations with event-wide connectivity. From streamlined gate entry to an immersive app, giving fans blazing fast access to the sport they love. This is accelerating innovation. This is the Las Vegas Grand Prix with T-Mobile for Business. Take your business further at T-Mobile.com slash now. What's on the horizon for financial markets? At PGIM, it's a question that over 1,400 investment professionals relentlessly research in pursuit of your long-term goals. 
Specialised across asset classes, but united in collaboration, our teams provide global and local expertise. Our investments shape tomorrow, today. Pursue your tomorrow with PGIM, a leading global asset manager. Welcome back. It's time now for Earnings Exchange. We've had some huge movers already today, like Salesforce and Snowflake and Sprouts. We've got three more big names on deck. Let's get right to the action, the story, and the trade on three names reporting after the bell. And we'll start with Broadcom. Stephanie Link told us they're an under-the-radar AI play, the third largest chip maker, up 5% this year. Christina Partsinevelis has that story, and Steve Grasso has our trades today. He's Grasso Global CEO and a CNBC contributor. Welcome to both of you. Christina, kick things off. Lowell, we have three main points. The first one being, will a data center and cloud infrastructure demand continue to stay strong? We saw uh, that strong uh, commentary from Arista Networks as well as Cisco, so that's going to be a huge driver. The second main point is Apple. The reason I bring up Apple is because yesterday Qualcomm CEO was on CNBC, and he said that Apple is going to go ahead with its own chips as of maybe early next year, 2024. So what does that mean for Broadcom, given Apple is such a large customer? Apple contributed roughly 20% of total sales just last year. So will that hurt margins going forward? Will we get any commentary about that relationship? Will it end before 2025? And then for talking about relationships, Google. Google is a partner with Broadcom. Back in 2016, they made this AI chip that, uh, Kelly, you were alluding to, the TPU that's going to be used or has been used in their Baird products. So could this relationship continue to flourish and grow so that it too, uh, Broadcom can benefit from the AI, uh, I guess, uh, commentary and that we're hearing at every single earnings call. And then the last one is the VMware deal that is still up in the air. Uh, EU regulators are said to put out another antitrust warning uh, just in the coming weeks. And so that's a big overhang for the company as well, since Broadcom wants to buy VMware. Great point. <laughs> good to, always good to mention. Steve, what would you do with the stock? So, so for me, I'm afraid to say sell it. So I'll say hmm. hold it because uh, as, as, as she just reported, everything sort of hinges on VMware. This is a, a networking stock that leads in the semiconductor space in that area, but they need a software solution. So they need VMware. And also, Kelly, th this has been a very acquisitive company in the past. So they lead in software security. They lead networking um, so this is something where they sort of need this. What's interesting about the stock is it's above all its moving averages, and it's right around the level where the VMware deal was first announced. So this is the barometer level for the name. All right. We'll leave it there, Christina. Thank you. And we'll turn our attention to the next one on tap. Costco, the retail giant, also up 5% this year, but 20% off its highs. And Charlie Munger last month saying he's still a total addict to the stock and that it will be a titan of e-commerce. We turn to Melissa Repko. Melissa, what are you watching? Hey, Kelly, the first thing I'll be watching is really membership pricing and membership trends. Costco has said it's not an if, it's a when, when it will raise membership fees. And so that's something that investors will be paying attention to because it drives the bulk of the company's revenue. The second thing is I'll be listening for foot traffic patterns. Costco has been a big beneficiary over the past couple of years for kind of a rolling list of reasons. First, you know, pantry, loading, then cheaper gas. And now people are turning to its stores for value packs and bulk sizing because they're, they're mindful of inflation. So we'll hear how that's going. And then the third thing could be a weaker point for Costco, and that's big ticket items. A lot of people have 
been pulling back on discretionary. That's something we heard most recently from Best Buy today. And so it'll be interesting to see if Costco is seeing that dynamic play out too. Great point. Steve, you're going against Charlie. You're, this is a sell for you? Yeah, this is a sell for me. I, you know, I don't like going against Charlie, but you, you have different timelines, different perspectives. This stock has been in a de- declining trend line since April. So the world has been going against Charlie as well. And this is going to be the slowest growth, Kelly, in three years. Hmm. That, to me, Costco used to be a favorite of mine. Um, the, you know, when they up, up there on their subscriptions, it's like an annuity for the company. But the truth is they're trying to figure out pre-pandemic, during the pandemic, and now post. What are people going to buy? How are they going to hoard? And I think those hoarding days are somewhat over. Uh, let, let, just real quick. When we look at Broadcom, it's above all its moving averages. Costco is below all of its moving averages. Mm. Not a great technical setup either. Well, you know, he's got a, he's 99, but he's got a longer, I guess we've got a long enough time horizon. Uh, Costco has been a name I think he was <laughs> looking for, hoping for a pullback. But anyway, take your point. Let's move on to Nordstrom, the volatile retailer up 20% since Jan 1 after Ryan Cohen took a stake, but it carries 23% short interest. Be careful. Melissa, can anyone turn this around? Kelly, Nordstrom may have a rough day tomorrow. We already heard from the company that they had a weaker than expected holiday season. And of course, that makes up the bulk of the 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 quarter. So we'll be listening for what they expect in the full year. Will it continue to have a lot of markdowns? That was really its problem in the fourth quarter. So I'll listen for that. The other thing is it has a big off-price name, Nordstrom Rack, and that's been lagging even the namesake brand. During the nine-week period that ended in December, that actually underperformed its namesake. So can they turn that around? It's especially concerning in light of the success that TJX and some of those other off-price names have reported. And then third, uh, last but not least, as you mentioned, Ryan Cohen has gotten involved with Nordstrom buying up a big stake, and he is known for pushing for change. And he has talked uh, specifically about getting uh, the Bed Bath & Beyond former CEO Mark Tritton off their board, as well as pushing for some changes. So I'll be listening to see how Nordstrom responds to that. How do they plan to react, and will they listen and make some changes? All right. Steve, we've had a hold and a sell from you. What would you do with Nordstrom? This is, this is a sell also. Ooh. And and. Ryan Cohen provided the only goose for the name, and and the stock has already given up a lot of that charge that he had. So this one is actually between the 50 and the 100-day moving average, Kelly. But Ryan Cohen is the only tailwind for the name. Investors are not so much focused on cost-cutting where Ryan is or switching up the board. They're focused on a declining strategy for the business. So I think that's the real problem Let's go back to 2017. They wanted to take the company private. They couldn't get the finance for it. So if you look at how long this has been in a declining trend line, it's been from March of 2021, Kelly. Hmm. I, don't think, I don't think things are turning around anytime soon. All right. Um, Steve, by the way, you mentioned the VMware holdup for you with Broadcom. Would C3AI, which also reports after the bell, be a name that you'd want to pick up for its AI exposure? Or the stock's up 90% this year. Maybe it's run too far. Can you imagine having AI as your stock symbol, Kelly, in a world where the buzzword is AI? It's a perfect setup. And what makes me so bullish about it is the strategic collaboration agreement with AWS. 
uh, and Amazon, it leaves them or it leads them to exposure to basically every different sector of the economy. Specifically, they'll mention defense and, and other areas, but it really encompasses A through Z, every different industry. I think you're going to get a better entry point on this hmm. one, but it is the purest play in AI that you could possibly get. All right. You're full of surprises today. Steve Grasso, thank you so much for our trades. Melissa Repko, thank you as well. And don't miss today on Closing Bell Overtime, an exclusive interview with C3AI CEO Tom Siebel. Very much looking forward to that. Coming up. From public service to professional sports and now private investments, Matt Higgins from RSE Ventures is here with his view on the market, the startup landscape, and advice for forlorn founders out there. And as we head to break, let's glance back at the Dow heat map where we have Salesforce keeping this uh, whole index in the green today. Multiply it by, what is it, seven? CRM up 12%. Anyway, we're not showing the number there, but it's keeping the Dow up 100 points while the S&P and the other averages are lower today. And you can see about evenly split otherwise. Worst performer back here, 3M down 1.6%. We're back after that. From their innovative practice facility to unmatched views from the fairway, the PGA of America is helping lower scores and elevate fan experiences with 5G solutions from T-Mobile for Business. Together, we're using AI-powered analytics to expand coaching tools and bringing fans closer to the pros with 5G-connected cameras. This is game-changing innovation. This is the PGA of America with T-Mobile for Business. Take your business further at T-Mobile.com slash now. Welcome back to The Exchange. Dow is up 176 points at the highs. We're up at just about 100 now, driven by Salesforce, S&P down a tenth, and NASDAQ down four tenths. Now, Tesla is lower after a big uh, investor day presentation fell short on specifics. The stock now down about 6.4%. That said, the mention by the company that they could use 75% less silicon carbide in their next powertrain is hurting the producers like STM, OnSemi, and WolfSpeed. WolfSpeed is down almost 10% today, and that's the driver there. A similar claim about removing rare earths from future models is also sending metal companies lower. Take a look at these MP materials, for instance, down more than 12%. Meantime, Kroger is leading the Staples Group after beating estimates. The CEO telling Swalk on the Street customers are already behaving like they're in a recession, looking to stretch their budgets. Company, though, getting almost a 4% boost and a 12% pop for Sprouts today, sharply higher after earnings as well. Both stocks on pace for their best day since September. Different story for Hormel and Tyson, though. They're both sliding to 52-week lows today. Hormel down 4%, Tyson down a percent. And Hormel posted a disappointing quarter, citing inflation pressure, supply chain inefficiencies, and lower-than-expected sales volumes. Finally, another big downside mover was Box, which actually posted an earnings beat. Those shares are on pace, though, for their worst day since March 2020. They're down almost 15%. Why? Weak forecast for the current quarter and full year. And if that sounds familiar, they're just the latest company to put out cautious guidance. As you can see here, all of these names have mentioned cautious outlooks for the year as a factor that's often weighed on their stocks. Let's get to Bertha Coombs now for a CNBC News update. Bertha? Hey, Kelly. Good afternoon. Here's what's happening at this hour. Increased demand for the diabetes drug Ozempic, which has become popular because it is also used for weight loss, has made it hard to find. But MZC News reports that it's not just because more prescriptions are being written. 
Many independent pharmacies are not carrying it because the wholesale price they pay is higher than the reimbursement that they get from insurers. This is the way our healthcare system works. And there is no less expensive generic version right now. It's a common problem for smaller drugstores that don't have as much leverage to negotiate payments as the big chains. Iran is investigating what its health minister calls hundreds of mild poison attacks targeting young female students in recent months. Some have been hospitalized with respiratory, cardiac, and neurological symptoms. There are fears religious fundamentalists are trying to prevent girls from being educated. And using modern scanning technology and cameras, scientists have confirmed the existence of a hidden, unfinished corridor inside the Great Pyramid of Giza. They showed video at a news conference today. The space may have been created to redistribute weight around the pyramid's entrance. That is on my bucket list to get to the pyramids, Kelly. Do it now. Don't wait. Right? Yeah. Get there, Bertha. Thank you very much. Still ahead, the problem with the jobs data? My next guest says it's an imprecise representation of reality, and it's getting less precise with each passing month. So should the Fed be using it as a gauge or not for monetary policy? We'll discuss after this. Welcome back to The Exchange. There were 190,000 applications for jobless benefits last week, the seventh straight time that claims were below 200K. Usually indicates a tight labor market, but what if you can't depend on the data? My next guest is finding some fault with these numbers, saying the response rate for labor surveys has been falling of late, and that could create a headache for the Fed. Joining me now is Mark Zandi, chief economist at Moody's Analytics and senior economics correspondent Steve Leisman. Welcome to you both. So, Mark, where do we see the biggest problems? Well, Kelly, they're across the board. Uh, the response rates are down across uh, all the surveys that are being done by the government and by uh, you know, private companies. I mean, just to give you a sense of it, if you go back a decade ago, and I think I, I think these numbers are, are, are mostly right, uh, that uh, about two-thirds of the businesses that were surveyed by the Bureau of Labor Statistics uh, were responding to the survey on employment, the uh, payroll survey. We're now down to less than half of of, of businesses responding, uh, and that's in 10 years. And it, uh, it fell very sharply during the pandemic. I think a lot of companies just obviously, given the circumstance, stopped reporting and haven't started reporting again. So the response rates are very low. And, you know, this, the script's still being written here. These response rates continue to decline. And, you know, of course, these are surveys, and you're trying to survey a population, you know, all the employment out there in the country. If the surveys are getting less and less uh, comprehensive, then your ability to gauge what's going on in the economy and the job market in particular is uh, you know, impaired. Yeah, and the revisions could get bigger because, like you say, they do benchmark this when they get actual unemployment insurance records, Stephen. It's not just the businesses. It's the population piece of this as well. It could be survey fatigue, privacy, cybersecurity, the pandemic, self. Who knows, right? Yeah, it's a big issue. And something else uh, I, I know Mark is aware of is um, at turning points in the economy, there are expectations for the numbers of businesses that are created and those that go away. Um, and the government has historically not done a terrific job at modeling that at turning points. Makes sense what it does during uh, expansions and during contractions that we know of. But when you have these changes, the birth death model tends to exaggerate it. So there could be I, my, my bigger problem with Mark's argument, though, is that um, I, I don't see the weakness in the claims data. And, and that would be a place 
it should show up. I don't believe that data, unless I'm mistaken, is affected uh, by the response rate issue. The continuing claims data has been kind of flat. We saw a bit of a surge, hasn't continued to surge. And the weekly inputs uh, in the numbers, as you said at the top of the segment, uh, uh, Kelly, being below 200,000 for seven weeks now, yeah, it's pretty strong data. By the way, Steve, did we just get some Fed speak? Yes, uh, Rafael Bostic from Atlanta saying there's a case to be made that we need we may need to go higher. We being the Federal Reserve, of course, uh, he is at this point firmly in the quarter point camp. Uh, Bostic talking a, a little bit ago with reporters, he said some attenuation of inflation has happened, but there's still a long way to go. Households and companies he sees are still flush with cash. Big issue about how much that savings uh, uh, from the pandemic is still around. Um, and then he says the fight against inflation is mathematically about halfway there. And just one or two more things here. He says the policy has only recently entered restrictive space. He expects it to start to bite in the spring. Good reason to think he believes that things will slow down in the economy comes the spring when uh, things, the effects of Fed interest rates start to hit, Kelly. All right. So this, Mark, kind of goes back to the discussion we're having. The Fed is data dependent. They're watching every single data point and we're trying to make sure these are reliable. One of the places where we're seeing more focus is on job openings, Mark. So um, and we obviously on these programs talked to the ZipRecruiter CEO last week when the shares were down 25 percent. If you look at Indeed.com postings, those job openings are falling pretty sharply while the Labor Department's data is holding up. Is that just a lag effect or is there a, a data problem? Well, there could be a data problem there, too. I mean, and, and, you know, the job openings has its own issues. I mean, you know, I, I think what a lot of companies are doing, and now I'm speaking to you as a, a person who runs a business and hires lots of people, that, uh, you know, when you have normal turnover, people leave, that opens up the job position. And if you're nervous, cautious about the economy going forward, you say, okay, I'm just going to slow walk the hiring mm-hmm. and just not fill those positions as quickly. I'm not going to get rid of the open position. And I'm not going to shut down the HR act, the human resource activity, because you know restarting that is a, you know going to be very painful, very difficult to do. So I'm just going to slow walk things, and so those job opening positions start to rise. So it's not representing strength; it's representing actual weakness in the economy. So. And going back to Steve's point about the UI claims, he, you, you know, Steve, you're right, but that's just a window on layoffs. I think most of the action, most of the slowing in the labor market, most of the weakening is with regard to hiring, what I just said. And there we, you know, it, it's not only about imprecise data, it's just we don't really have good data to, you know, to really see what's going on on that side of the economy. And Steve, the I've heard private sector anecdotes as well that say, I think it was for Indeed that companies are not paying to promote the, the openings the way that they once were because there's kind of less of a need and a desperation uh, to fill positions. So there, there are, and I, there's no way to extrapolate. Uh, all we know is we have these data points. Yeah, I mean, when I, there was an article the other day in the journal about the, uh, the, the Indeeds and the ZipRecruiters. I looked at that data and came to something of a different conclusion, which is that, yeah, they're down from their peaks, but they're still higher than they were before the pandemic in many cases. And if companies are not paying as much but still advertising jobs, you know, maybe they're not quite as eager. But the problem we have with this economy, Kelly, is that the labor market is so out of whack that even if the jobs data was half wrong, let's say it was 250,000 in January, not 500,000, it's still two and a half times what it ought to be in order to have a normal job market. So uh, right now, I I hate to say this, but precision is not exactly what we need. We we have a problem that is evident in 
a whole bunch of different indicators. Let's say that the unemployment rate at 3.4% is three-tenths off or four-tenths off. We're still below 4%. So it's not like this is the moment of precision of trying to thread the needle on Fed policy. Fed policy needs to be tighter if it no. indeed is, if it's aim and it's possible to bring down, uh, or to create some slack in the job market. Mark, quick yeah, last I, word. Yeah, I'm not so sure about that. I mean, if, if the underlying rate of job growth is 200, 250K, and by the way, that's where I think it is. That, at the January number is a bum uh, But Mark, population growth is 100. Population yeah, and, growth is 100, so you're still Actually, the job growth may be 100. When we get all the revisions in, when we get the, the uh, when we benchmark this data, to the unemployment insurance records, which is a census of jobs, it, you know, because there's circumstantial evidence building that that's the case, that we're going to see these downward revisions. And by the way, my sort of uh, theory of the case is actually consistent with the moderation in wage growth that we're observing. That's not consistent with the idea that the labor market's roaring. And so you think you so Mark, Mark Zandi, my good friend over many years, you think that the job data is Five times, five X a standard deviation of the normal 95%, no, 100,000 plus or minus confidence level. No, you went down to 100. You didn't go to, yeah. you said it's 100, not 200. Yeah. No, I did. Because the underlying rate of job growth, you know, you can give me, I can, you can cherry pick months. Go ahead and cherry pick a month. But the underlying rate of job growth is a couple hundred K, probably. I mean, take a three month moving average, okay. take a six month moving average, right? I mean, to get the underlying job growth. Probably 200, 250K, you're double what we, what the data says is we're double what we need. And I'm saying to you, maybe not. I mean, when we get the actual data in, it may actually Kelly, be. Kelly, this is, this is what happens when you pull back the curtain and let Wonks argue <laughs> exactly. on national television. That's I, the point. We, we argue I, standard deviation of the job market. God help well, us. This, this is what happens at the Federal Reserve Board when they sit down, they're having the same argument because the data is so imprecise. <laughs> I hope it's this much fun. Uh, Mark, yeah. I do I do appreciate what you're saying because this needs to be part of the mainstream conversation, I think, and not just something that we kind of wonder about in, at night when we're checking Twitter. Uh, maybe that's just me. Thank you both. Mark Zandi, Steve Leisman. I really appreciate it. Yeah. Still ahead, Rivian's giant cash burn. We've got the details next. Welcome back. Shares of Rivian uh, now have turned lower, extending their decline to about 17 percent over the past couple of days after reporting those mixed quarterly results and a new safety recall. It's second in less than six months. Rivian also lost money, get this, on every car it sold last year while also investing for the future. That led to a huge negative free cash flow number. Let's get to Deirdre Bosa for the details. And Deirdre, a look at some other companies burning cash as well. Yeah, so let's take a step back and look at the earnings season as a whole. On the surface, it's all about cost-cutting efficiency, the bottom line. But the quality of those earnings, especially in tech, that could require a little bit of digging for savvy investors. So look at a couple of today's movers, by the way. Salesforce and Snowflake investors, they're certainly excited about Benioff's newfound religion on profitability, but that's going to take time on a gap basis. Salesforce still lost 10 cents per share. And as for Snowflake's, investors... You can't tell by the share price, but they did like the better unit economics. The company, though, is still racking up more than $800 million in net losses over the last 12 months on slower revenue growth. Of course, that long-term story in tech is that the best companies are disruptive, so the payoff may take longer. But that patience could be tested at some of the newer names where cash burn is hitting unprecedented levels. Take Rivian, as Kelly pointed to. Sure, it's investing for its future, but free cash flow for 2022 was a negative $6.4 billion. Lucid? 
burned through 3.3 billion last year. That's about as bad as it gets in tech. Netflix's worst free cash flow number was negative 3.1 billion back in 2019. Uber's as a public company was 4.8 billion the same year. And for sure, you could point to the fact that Tesla had more than a decade of free cash flow burn. It's now more profitable than any other automaker, but that was during an era of easy money. The newer players are going to have to build, perhaps raise more money against a backdrop of higher interest rates. Now, outside the world of EVs, earnings and cash burn could be improving this season, but losses also may be more difficult to spot as companies put the focus on unit economics, adjusted EBITDA. There are signs, though, Kelly, that the SEC is starting to scrutinize, asking companies, including Lyft and sleep number to clarify non-GAAP measures in their presentations. And some investors even take issue with that free cash flow number. And what, yeah, what, what do the companies do in that case, you think? What do they do in terms of if, are they cutting have their losses? To, well, more just if people are saying, we don't really want to look at these numbers the way you want to present them, uh, do they ultimately give up the ghost? Well, they're punished in stock price. I think that investors are smart. They know how to look through it. You take a look at some of the gig companies like Uber and Lyft and DoorDash, and they haven't done particularly well as public companies because they may be saying, look at adjusted EBITDA, but the market's looking at net losses. Um, that may be changing, though. I mean, free cash flow, take an example like Uber. Yes, they've actually increased that free cash flow. So it's been doing much better in the market versus, say, a Lyft. But again, someone like Jim Chanos would say that free cash flow takes away stock-based compensation, and that's something really important to look at. So I think maybe the bottom line is that it's difficult, especially in tech. You have to figure out which metrics you want to look at. Unit economics is not a bad one, but you just got to know what you're looking at. Great point. Deirdre, thank you so much. We appreciate it. Deirdre Bosa for this edition of Tech Check. We've got some breaking news on AMD. Scott Wapner with the story. Scott, what's happening? Hey, Kel, appreciate it very much. The breaking news is that, according to sources, Third Point's Daniel Loeb is taking, uh, has taken a new position in AMD, uh, said, uh, according to the sources, to be a passive stake. And that's very important to note, obviously, uh, because Mr. Loeb is known uh, quite substantially as an activist investor. But this one is said to be a passive. It's a newish stake, uh, the way that I understand it to be. What's interesting as it relates here, is that, you know, they used to be in Intel, which they're no longer, uh, by the way. Um, and one of the principal reasons that, you know, things didn't go awry in, in that is because, you know, AMD uh, has taken market share, uh, among others, uh, from Intel, which was one of Loeb's arguments in the Intel investment of why he wanted Intel to do certain things was to be able to catch up to a company like AMD. And Although this is not activist, uh, an activist position, you know he's been pretty busy lately uh, starting a proxy fight with uh, Bath & Body Works, uh, what, a week or so ago, uh, writing one of his patented letters uh, to that company. But this is interesting uh, given the timing. The stock had uh, traded down a bunch, and I'm told that's when they had established uh, their position. Newish, and uh, again, it is a passive stake, but something to keep an eye on. Uh, what may be one of the newer positions here from uh, Daniel Loeb's third point. So in other words, Scott, it's probably a sign of confidence instead of a sign of trouble. Sure. Uh, yeah, I don't think they're trying to, you know, shake the trees over there and, and get uh, AMD <laughs> to do anything. Uh, not certainly in the, in the likes of maybe what they wanted to do as it pertains to Intel or some of the other uh, activist positions they have. They, they obviously... Uh, must like the job that uh, Dr. Lisa Su uh, is doing as, as the CEO. And, uh, you know, look, Loeb, Loeb's a pretty active guy just in general, the way that they, they trade in and out of stuff occasionally. But this is uh, just interesting to follow because it is uh, one of the newer ones. Certainly. Scott, thank you so much for bringing that to us.
Thanks, Kel. Scott Wapner will see you in about an hour. Still ahead, have you ever used Resi to score a table? Ever hit up Milk Bar or Bluestone Lane? I miss Bluestone Lane. Uh, then you have venture capitalist Matt Higgins to thank. He'll join me here in studio to discuss the state of startups next. Welcome back. Just a few weeks ago, venture capitalist Tom Levero warned, of, warned us of a mass extinction event for startups as the era of free money dries up. Crunchbase reporting startup investment in the fourth quarter fell 63% from last year. And my next guest, another VC, says the community is paralyzed right now as economic uncertainty persists. Joining me is Matt Higgins, co-founder and CEO of RSE Ventures and the author of Burn the Boats, Toss Plan B Overboard and Unleash Your Full Potential. Matt, it's great to have you here. Thanks for having me. I think Burn the Boats might resonate right now. Um, yeah, but the, Burn the Boats not with you in it, though. That's right, not the time. No, but for people, I mean, we're going through one of these very, very difficult processes, especially for startups. What's, what, what do you tell them? Yeah, I tell them plan. I mean, I, I hear all this talk about a soft landing. I don't know what a soft landing is. When you're out there, it doesn't feel very soft. And yeah. the, the way you survive is to anticipate and make the changes now. I'm meeting with all my different CEOs on the consumer front saying, let's let's get ahead of it before consumer spending dries up. What does that look like? We mentioned some of these very buzzy, you know, wonderful brands, Momofuku, Bluestone Lane. I mean, when you talk to companies like that, I don't, I don't know if you're still involved, but how do you get ahead? What does that mean? Are you talking about pulling back on staff? Are you talking about layoffs? Do you just maybe pull back on investment or lean into tech? I mean, what does that look like? I think it all, it all depends. A lot of getting ahead is keep your powder dry, right? When you're talking about um, businesses that are heavy brick and mortar, I do think there's going to be a massive correction on the real estate side. Really? There's going to be more deals that are available. It just makes sense. What do you mean correction? So if the, if the consumer spending dries up 70% of the GDP, right? right? And eventually consumer spending will dry up. Well, then you'll have uh, landlords who will be more desperate for tenants. And so don't commit to these leases right now. Keep your powder dry. Be patient. Keep your overhead constrained. Don't overly invest in growth and just wait for things to come around. Most of my message is just wait. Interesting. And what, would you tell them the same thing on wages? I mean... Yeah, I, 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 and inevitably unemployment's going to have to tick up for inflation to come down. Yeah. Right? And so uh, eventually wage pressure will ease up. I am seeing some easing up on commodities. Actually, mm. I was on the phone with the CEO of Magnolia Bakery, yes. one of our companies, uh, and saying that actually they're seeing egg and butter ease up. So there's been some relief on, on, on consumer prices. But the most important part is to anticipate that what you want to do today, what you want to spend on, will probably be cheaper. In a, year, in a year from now. You know sports as well as anybody, and I'm a little skeptical. Look, they were definitely recession-proof 15 years ago, great financial crisis, sports valuations continued to rise, rights packages, all the rest of it. Are they peaking now? Are they going to be recession-proof this time around? They are going to be. Well, <laughs> I know you're skeptical. Possible? I want to agree with you. It's just the way it is. You know why? When you go through downturns back in the 30s, it was movies, right? And right now, it'll be affordable indulgences like Starbucks. True. And I think you know Starbucks is a degree to which it's a recession immune. Same thing will be true of sports. We need indulgences when things get dark. And I think it is going to be a dark period in America for 18 months. So I'm long sports. I, that's, I hadn't paired it quite that way. So now you've maybe convinced me. Where else you, would you look at things a little differently than what you're hearing conventionally said right now? 
I think that uh, I think there's going to be uh, a wave of consolidation in the direct-to-consumer space. The, mm. the, the, the consumer is moving from the want-to-have uh, to the need-to-have. And a lot of these great direct-to-consumer businesses, I teach this subject at Harvard Business School, yeah. a lot of them are in the, in the need-to-have category. And I think that they're going to be unable to raise uh, subsequent rounds, right? They like the raise... original Warby Parker, all the Yeah, yeah, right. Brands. That was the 210, yeah. 2010 vintage. Yeah. But this current vintage raised a ton of money during the pandemic based upon cheap customer acquisition. Everybody yeah. was home, right? But now they're being told, no, we'll only invest in you if you have a path to profitability and if you have vertically integrated supply chains. It's not possible to pivot that quickly. So there's going to be a lot of consolidation. Fascinating. Matt, thanks for your time today. Thank you for having me. Great to have you here. Burn the boats. Yeah, Matt Higgins with RSC Ventures. That does it for The Exchange. And next on Power Lunch, we're going to talk to the CEO of a biotech company. With all we've just said, their stock has tripled in the past 24 hours. There's Dom Chu on the Tyler Cam. (laughs) I'll join him on the other side of this break. (laughs) From a flat tire in the city to a dead battery on a distant drive, AAA is partnering with T-Mobile for Business to accelerate response times and get more drivers back on the road fast. Our nationwide connectivity powers location telematics, so AAA's fleet can find stranded drivers quickly while being fully equipped with the in-vehicle tools to have answers when they get there. This is elevating the member experience. This is AAA with T-Mobile for Business. Take your business further at T-Mobile.com slash now.